0: Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together.
1: Father, we're here gathered together so thankful that you love failures. If you didn't, there'd be no hope for any of us. Father, how kind you have been to us. No guilt, no shame, our debt is paid, we give thanks to you, our Lord and our God, with our whole hearts, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks. O oh Lord, they've heard the words of your mouth and they shall sing of your ways for great is your glory. Though you are high, you regard us, the lowly. We know and we trust that you will fulfill your purpose for us. Your steadfast love endures forever, and it's because of your steadfast love that we come to you to pray as a church. We're thankful for various missions teams being sent out this week. We pray for those going to Arlington. We pray for the Costa Rica trip. We pray for the Mexico trip, God, that you would be at work in strong ways. God, would you use our people to be a means of blessing to the context that they're going, whether that means being able to share the gospel, whether that means building up the faith of the believers that are there. I pray that you would use them ultimately to continue your kingdom purposes. Pray for safety and we pray for the people that have gone that you would also be doing a work in them as they think about you and your purposes for the nations. Father, we're thankful for the birth of Liesl King. We're thankful for a healthy baby, healthy mama. We pray for the kings that They would have endurance uh, these next weeks and months, God, and we pray for her faith, that you would grant her faith and repentance at a very early age. We think about a missionary partner, Samuel and Lindsay, not not actually knowing how they're doing today after missiles being launched near Erbil. We pray for their safety. We pray that you would use this as as a catalyst for their ministry. Pray for their safety and pray for their strength of faith thankful for members that will be joining in marriage this very day. We pray for David Mock and Jordan Fowler, God, that you would be with them and that this marriage would be founded upon you, that this marriage would be centered upon you, that this marriage would be a means of each of their sanctification and that they would learn to fight well and do conflict resolution and that ultimately this marriage would be a faithful embodiment of Christ and the church. Father, I pray for our church that we would be a church that hates pornography. God, would you give us just a love for you, an increased infection for you because that's the ultimate antidote and pray that correspondingly it'd be, we would be a church, a membership that grows, increases in our hatred for it. Would you give anyone here struggling with it favor in the battle of one of the major cultural idols of our day? God as we turn to your word would you reveal to us what flesh and blood cannot reveal the centrality of Jesus Christ we pray it in his name amen well the question of Jesus Christ really is the most important question in the world I've mentioned this a few times as we've walked through the gospel of Matthew he did some amazing things and he's said some astounding things, and we've concluded a couple times that he must either be a liar, said a whole lot of untruthful things, or he must be a lunatic, he just must be crazy, because some of the things he said make no sense if he was merely a human teacher, or he must be who he said he is, namely, the Lord of the worlds. We have that question settled for us probably in the most clearest of ways here in Matthew chapter 16. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 771, 771, and these verses and next week verses really are a central turning point in the ministry of Jesus. So we're going to look at who he is, his person this week, and then his work next week. So let's consider Matthew chapter 16. First, a pressing question here in verses 13 and 14. Matthew 16, 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus wants to take stock. You know, where, where are his disciples at? But first he asks, well, who are others saying that I am? So news is getting around. Buzz is happening. We've seen that already. he already made it all the way to Tyre and Sidon with the Canaanite woman, right? So people are hearing about this Jesus. So he asks, who are people saying that I am? And he gets various responses. Some are saying that the Son of Man is John the Baptist. We saw that with Herod, right, a couple chapters ago. Herod was being haunted by, he thought he was being haunted by the ghost of John the Baptist who was raised from the dead. Others are saying, Elijah, this is Elijah, come back. Why would they say that, Elijah, of all the Old Testament prophets? Well, there was this Jewish expectation that Elijah would come. In fact, we've got our Bibles open here to Matthew. The very next book before is Malachi. Flip over there with me. It's the last book of the Old Testament. As you can imagine it was a very important book in terms of what the people of God should be expecting. Turn to Malachi chapter 3 and we'll see just one example of why the people might have thought it was Elijah to come. Malachi 3 verse 1. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So there's this expectation that God's going to come back to his people and restore, but here we learn also, judge. God's going to come back to his people and refine them, purify them, and he's going to come to his temple. But first, he's going to send a messenger. Before him. Flip a page to Malachi chapter 4 and we learn who this messenger is. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So God's promising to his people, I'm not left you alone. I realize you're in exile, but I'm going to come. But before I come, I'm going to send a messenger. Who's going to go to the temple and he's going to warn the people of God, and that messenger will be Elijah. Remember, Elijah's long been dead at this point. So is it John the Baptist, this, this worker, miracle worker, this wonder worker, this exorcist? Is it Elijah? Jesus actually tells us that John the Baptist is. Elijah, flip back to Matthew and then back a couple chapters from our passage to Matthew chapter 11, verse 9, Matthew eleven nine. Jesus speaking about John says, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. And he quotes the passage we just read from Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophet prophesied until John And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Well, there it is. Jesus tells us the prophecy of Malachi about the coming Elijah actually is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger who comes before God himself comes, and he's going to come to purify his people. In fact, where the Gospel of Matthew is going is Jesus is actually going to go where? To the temple to make judgment upon his unrepentant people. He says it again, back to Matthew 16. Look at the next page, Matthew 17, just so we have this clear in our mind. Matthew 17, verse 10. Again, Jesus says the same thing. The disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man, will certainly suffer at their hands. So the Jewish people didn't have eyes to see that John the Baptist was Elijah to come. But Jesus is not John the Baptist and Jesus is not Elijah. Jesus is something greater. Who was he? Well, the disciples said others were saying that he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why Jeremiah instead of Isaiah or Ezekiel? Maybe because Jeremiah was a prophet of doom, kind of like Jesus. Think about his message. It was largely bad news. Judgment is coming if you don't repent. And Jeremiah predicted the destruction of the temple, which Jesus will go on to do in the latter part of the Gospel of Matthew. But this is not Jeremiah. This is not one of the prophets. Well, who is it? Second, a powerful confession. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Jesus has heard what others have been saying and now he turns to disciples, but what about you? And Peter, always quick to speak, answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter nails it. (laughs) What does he mean by the Christ? Remember, Christ, and I love the way here the ESV has that definite article. It's not you are Christ, it's you are the Christ. Remember, Christ is not a last name. We tend to think that because we hear Jesus Christ so often. But it's a title, it's a royal title. It's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. That's what it means, the anointed one, the king, the long-awaited deliverer and redeemer of Israel. Really, the whole Old Testament has been pointing forward to this right from the very beginning, right? God creates the world. Everything is good. Mankind's called to rule and represent on his behalf, but they decide they think they know better. And so God makes a promise right there in those early chapters, Genesis chapter 3, that there would be a child, an offspring of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent, would deliver us from evil. And so the rest of the story of the Old Testament is when is this offspring going to come? this offspring of the woman who will defeat evil. And we see it's going to end up being an offspring of Noah because he's the only one, and then offspring of Abraham ultimately. God calls Abraham, makes the grandest promises in the Bible that through Abraham's offspring, evil would be defeated and the whole world would be blessed, all the nations. And then there's the forming of the nation of Israel and this Messiah will come from those people. And then there's some promises to David. We saw a lot of that last week, Remember? All these promises that God would give David a son, a king, and his kingdom would be eternal. He would be the anointed king. In other words, the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to what? The coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And this is what Peter says, you are the Christ. But notice, that's not all. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's not only the Messiah, he's God himself. This is so fascinating about the Malachi passage, right? Because God himself, Yahweh is promising, I'm going to come. But he says, first, I'm going to send a messenger. And here we have Jesus saying, that messenger is John the Baptist. And guess who's coming after him? Me. It's the highest view of Jesus you could have. Jesus is is God himself coming back to his people to restore and regather them and he sends his messenger first. That's why Matthew starts the way it does. You remember Matthew one? Emmanuel, God with us. That's why in those promises to David, that Davidic covenant, he says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Let me read from Psalm chapter two. This is one I didn't read last week, one of those many messianic Psalms. Psalm 2.6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is Psalm 2, in fact, I didn't start reading, but up in Psalm two. Verse two, it says this, the nations have conspired against the Lord and his anointed, that word anointed in the Greek Old Testament, Christos. It's the same here in Matthew 16, Christ, Messiah. He's not only the Messiah, he's God himself. He's the son of God, the the deity of Christ is a basic tenet of the Christian faith. The fact that Jesus Christ is God is basic for us. So Peter gets it right. Peter nails it, but Jesus wants to make sure he doesn't realize that actually it wasn't him. It was revealed to him. Look at a precious revelation in verse 17 of Matthew 16. And Jesus answered him Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter didn't come to this conclusion. He nails it, but really he didn't. He didn't come to it on on his own. He He didn't receive it. It wasn't revealed to him by flesh and blood. What does that mean? That's just people. That's just mankind. No man revealed this to Peter, but the Father did. It's really important for us to remember that Peter and even us, those of us who see Jesus as precious, it's not that we came to that conclusion on our own. We were dead in sin and blinded bored by Jesus, but the father revealed to us the fact that he is in fact who he said he is, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said that before, right? Flip back again in Matthew chapter 11, in Jesus' prayer of thanksgiving to the father, it's very similar, 1125. Jesus declared, I thank you, father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so Peter gets it right, but Jesus says, you didn't get this from any person, God revealed this to you. It's like Jesus wants to make sure Peter and us aren't tempted to take any credit. But he gets it right, and in response, Jesus then, forth gives a potent promise in verse 18. Kids, potent means powerful, but I'm trying to go for Ps here, and I already used powerful, so verse 18, a potent promise. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you know this verse is very thorny. Tons, tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of debate about what does Jesus mean by this verse. And there's really three main options. What does he mean? What is this rock? You are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Well, three main options. Number one is the rock, Jesus. You are Peter, and on me, I'll build my church. Now, this is probably a minority view. Um, Of course, it's true that Jesus is the rock, right? And other passages, say Jesus is, in fact, is the most important rock. He's the cornerstone, Ephesians 2. But I don't think that's what this verse is saying. It's true and other verses, teach it, but I don't think this passage is actually teaching that. Interestingly, Peter does say in his letter that that Jesus is a rock, living stone. That's the first option. Is the rock Jesus? Maybe, I don't think so. Second view, and this is the most popular view in terms of Protestants, we're Protestants. We've protested against the Roman Catholic Church, Baptists are Protestants. And this is the most popular view. It's the confession of Peter. So what is the rock that Jesus is gonna build his church on? It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And on that confession, Jesus will build his church. And again, of course, this is true. And most of my heroes hold this view, but still it seems a little bit forced. I don't actually think that's the right view either. could be. So is the rock Jesus? Is the rock the confession of Peter? Or is the rock Peter himself? I think it's a combination of two and three. I actually do think the rock is Peter, but Peter who confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And the main reason why is there's a word play that we don't get in English. Look again at verse 18. Help you out a little bit here. I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. In fact, the ESV has a little footnote that says Peter sounds like rock. So I think Jesus has got a little play on words here to say that You are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. This this is mostly the Roman, no, exclusively, this is the Roman Catholic view of the church. I mean, of this passage, I mean. And if you know anything about me, you know that I am not a fan of the theology of Roman Catholic Church. I've got a book about it, The Five Solas. You should buy a copy. It'll feed hungry children. Their names are Josiah, Asher, Knox, Karis, both. (laughs) One of my heroes, probably top three heroes, J.C. Rowell says about the view that I'm adopting, he says, my view is, quote, exceedingly improbable. (laughs) But I think it's right. Now, here's the issue with the verse. I think Protestants actually are overreacting to the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church uses this verse as a proof text for the whole papacy. See, Peter's the rock, therefore... Petrine infallibility, exclusive authority, apostolic, uh, apostolic succession. Uh, what else? All this human tradition built upon this little verse. But I would just submit, friends, that the verse just says nothing like that. And so we can let the verse say what it says, which I think is Peter as the rock, without adopting all that later man made tradition. The passage says nothing about any of that stuff. Peter's no pope, Peter was married. Peter goes from being the rock in verse 18 to verse 23, Satan himself. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's not infallible. He's not a vicar of Christ. Peter himself didn't think he was important. I love 1 Peter 5.1. So Peter's writing to elders and Peter says, I'm just a fellow elder. So The Roman Catholic vision of a papacy and one man who's the vicar of Christ, who has all authority, it's just not found in the Bible. It's certainly nowhere in these passages. So I don't think we need to overreact to a man-made system in light of what the verse says. Peter is the rock precisely because of his confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Those two can't be separated. He's the confessor and his confession, they go together. And so Jesus is gonna build his church, not on people only, And not on truths only, but the right people who say the right truths. On a who and a what. On a confessor and a confession. So I do think it's fine to say Peter was the rock without having to take all the baggage of human tradition. Peter was the rock. We know that. I mean, think about him. He's the very first one to make this confession. Peter's always the first one to speak. When Matthew chapter 10, when he lays out the disciples, here's the disciples. First, Simon Peter. He's always at the first of the list. We see in the book of Acts, Peter's the main leader for 10 chapters. So Peter was a very important person in the building of the early church. Does not mean he was a pope. He was a representative, the leading representative of the apostles and the prophets. So Jesus will build his church with the apostles and the prophets as the foundation. And when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? The you is plural. Who do y'all say that I am? And Peter answers, really answering on behalf of all. I will build my church, Jesus says. This is the first time church is mentioned in gospel. It was a really common word, actually. The term for church was a well-known word. The word is ecclesia, and it was a secular word, not exclusively a religious word, and it just meant assembly. That's what the church is. You hear church in the first century? It's a gathering of people for a particular purpose. Footnote, That's why online church is a contradiction in terms because church is a gathering of people for a particular purpose. That's what the word means. It means assembly. I really like the way our confession of faith defines a church. We hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 here at Southside. This is long, but I think it's good definition of what the church is. I think we have a slide. A church, a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous, meaning self-ruling, no one's telling us what to do here at Southside Baptist. It's an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing two ordinances of, of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons, two offices. Pastors also is over interchangeable with elders, elder and overseer, but pastor, elder, overseer, deacon. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. It's a good definition of what a church is. A little wordy, but helpful. And Jesus says, I will build my church. It's his. He's the head. The church is the body. In our gospel here, we're gonna make it to Jerusalem where he's gonna buy the church with his own blood. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. She is the blood-bought body of Christ. Jesus loves the church and he promises, I'm gonna build my church. Church is so important to the Lord. College kids, the few of you that are here, I'm preaching to the choir, but notice he doesn't say I will build my parachurch. So I needed someone to say to me when I was in college, because when I was in college as a fresh Christian, I was converted as a freshman and I spent all my time in I won't name it, but in a, in a parachurch ministry. And there are some things that can happen, but I really feel like I wasted my time, wasted my college career because the parachurch church ministry is not who Jesus died to purchase. You just don't find it in the Bible. He's building his church. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That implies we're gonna have enemies. That's becoming increasingly clear in America today, isn't it? But it's good to remind ourselves that this is normal. It's normal for Christians to be opposed by the wider culture. We saw that in Matthew 10, right? Jesus warned as he sent his people out. What does he say in Matthew 10, 16? Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Verse 22 You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Man, I don't know about you, I don't like to be hated but we just got to get used to being hated. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, demonic, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus warns us again and again in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. He says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. Is that anybody in this room? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So we will have enemies, but here's the promise. The powers of hell are will not overcome the church. The gates of hell will not conquer the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is invincible. The church is indestructible. Try as they might. Wherever the world endures, Jesus Christ will have his church. As those theologians from the 116 crew probably have taught more theology to a young generation than most. We ain't scared of you. What's she gonna go go murder us? What murder does is send a surge of us to go put churches up, just a martyr. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church has faced and will face a number of assaults and attacks, but it will endure. Jesus promises it. There's an old hymn, it's, it's not the easiest to sing and why we don't sing it, but it's good to know about mid 1800s and I wanna share it with you. It's a bit long, but it's beautiful. It's called The Church's One Foundation. It says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water in the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her and for her life, he died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the ends. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail, against both foe and traitor she ever shall prevail. Though with a scornful wonder the world sees her oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she awaits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, who promises he will build her and she's going nowhere. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. We often, I think, gets this, get this confused. The gates of hell won't prevail. What are gates? Are gates offensive or defensive? Gates are defensive. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is the one charging against the gates, not the ones running away. The church is to be advancing Not retreating. Now, there's times for strategic retreat. But by and large, I think we get too passive as the church when we have the promise. The powers of hell cannot resist the church's advances. I wonder, in your own life, whether it be at your job, in your evangelism, raising kids, whatever it is, do you have an offensive mindset or a defensive mindset exclusively? I think too many of us are purely defensive. Defensive. In retreating rather than advancing. We just need to remember that we win in the long run. Jesus promises it, so let's act like it. We're to be active as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the church then, we submit to his rule. The kingdom is us submitting to his rule. And what are we called to do fundamentally? Help others do the same. Submitting to his rule in every area of life. That's another way of talking about discipleship. It's really another way of saying the Great Commission, right? Where this is headed, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus declares all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to submit to everything I said. We are to submit to the king and go help others. Submit to the king. That's how the kingdom advances. And he promises that it will advance. It will not be destroyed. He promises victory. What an astounding promise. Jesus says, I will build my church. You ever thought about how? How? How will Jesus build his church? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. He's given all authority, so how is he doing it? Well, by the Spirit of God. Yes, that's true. But how does the Spirit build his church? Through us. Through you and I. Do you know that? We are Agents of the king, way back to Genesis 1. Remember, we were to rule and represent on God's behalf. That's no different now. Now we're doing it in the church. In fact, let me read some of my favorite local church verses from Ephesians 4. And notice how what we're called to do is right in line with what Jesus promised. Jesus has been exalted. This is Ephesians. A little bit before I'm going to read. And he's given gifts to the church in the form of leadership. And what is the leadership to do? Verse 12, equip the saints for the work of ministries. The various leaders of this church, through the ministry of the word, are equipping you to do the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? Building up the body is the same word Jesus uses. I will build my church. How does he do it? Word-equipped saints, building up the body. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood is working properly, makes the body grow so that that same word builds itself up in love. This is incredible. The Lord of the world, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God makes a promise that he will build his church and its advances will not be stopped. And how does he do it? Failures like you and I. Don't we all want to be part of something great? Or do we just want to, Go to school, get our little career, get our little promotion, get our two and a half kids and our picket fence and retire early. Is that really what we want, to die with just a decent retirement account? No. We all deep down wanna be part of something grand, something that will outlive us. Well, the kingdom of God is that answer and here we are, building the church, being the agents of Jesus. What we were made for. Here's your opportunity. Will bear fruit, forever and ever and ever. Fifth, then, a primary responsibility. Look at Matthew sixteen nineteen. Jesus says, to, "I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth." shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus doesn't want word getting out about him being the Messiah because they've got a wrong understanding of what the Messiah is. We'll see that. That's ultimately why he gets crucified. And Jesus gives Peter the power of the keys of the kingdom. What are those? Well, again, very popularly, Catholics would say that it's about the Pope who then has the power to admit souls to heaven or not. I don't think that's what the passage teaches. The next phrase says what the keys are, the power to bind and to loose. This is a metaphor that was often used in ancient Judaism. What do keys do? Well, the keys of the kingdom represent the ability to determine what is and what's not permitted. The power to make and enforce binding decisions. They are authoritative decisions concerning what's prohibited and permitted. To open and to close. To lock and to unlock. And Jesus says heaven will agree with the choice that has been made. With the binding and loosing. So these keys are first given to Peter here. But again, Peter's just the spokesman. He's just the representative for all. In fact, verse 19, this is where we have a distinct advantage in Texas and a distinct disadvantage in our Bible translations, because verse 19, the "you" is plural as well. But you wouldn't know that, right? I will give you the keys. It's plural. I will give y'all the keys of the kingdom. The disciples are representatives of the whole church, which is why Jesus gives these keys to the whole church in the very, on the very next page. Flip over to Matthew 18. Notice, just to get the context, this is a very famous church discipline passage, something so crystal clear in the Bible, but sadly often not practiced in churches. But notice, Jesus gives us our marching orders here. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Jesus wants to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. So go first by yourself, verse 16. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, teaching from Jesus widely neglected but Jesus only mentioned the church two times in his whole ministry do you know that we've just seen them in Matthew 16 and 18 so let's get them right and notice what he says the church tell it to the church i've been a part of a lot of churches and have a lot of pastor friends and that is often interpreted interpreted to mean tell the church staff tell the church leaders Tell the elders, tell the home group. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, commands his church that when there is ongoing, unrepentant, outward objective sin, it is to be told to the congregation because Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the assembled congregation. This is so important. Friends, this is why, if you're a member of Southside, this is why we've recently moved from elder rule where elders would decide membership matters to elder-led congregationalism because Jesus gave you the job of handling the keys, of admitting and removing. He did not give me that job. He didn't give the elders that job. We want to give you your job back because Jesus gave it to you. This is why we have member meetings now. And you are the ones who exercise the keys of the kingdom. Jesus has given you a job, that primary responsibility, I know this is a lot. There's a lot in these verses, isn't there? How should we respond? Very briefly, five ways. First, if you haven't reckoned with the Christ, I would just ask you, who do you say that he is? Ask you what Jesus asks. Have you reckoned with Christ? He tells us very clearly here, he's the son of man. He's the Messiah, he's the son of God. It's the Lord of the world. And so if you don't know him, get to know him. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to him. Drop your agenda and take on his agenda. Second, if you confess that he's the Christ, trust God's purposes and promises. He will build and preserve his church. The apple of his eye. Because of his power, the church ultimately is indestructible. Third, advance the mission. If the gates of hell can't stop us, storm the gates. Be at work for Christ and his kingdom. Fourth, and related, build the church. If you're a member, put all the chips in, plug in here. If not, find a local church. You can join and plug in and use your gifts. Get to work encouraging one another. Ephesians 4, speaking the truth to one another. Make it your main job. I'm coming here. Sundays are such a good opportunity. I'm going to come in here 15 minutes early, stay 15 minutes late with a a mind to encourage. I'm going to come in here and build up the body of Christ. Fifth, do the job that Jesus gave you. As a member, exercise the keys of the kingdom. Very practically, what that means is prioritize our membership meetings. That's where the work of the keys is exercised. So come, we only have three or four a year. They're a little little long. It's a lot of testimony, but prioritize them. May 1st is our next one. Go ahead and block it out on the calendar. May 1st, Jesus has given me the keys of the kingdom and I'm gonna show up to the office to do my job. Next one, September 11th, block it off. Next one is November 6th. So if you're a member, this is your God-given responsibility to come affirm professions of faith. Receive confessors who make the right confession. At times, this will require church discipline, binding and loosing, admitting and removing. This is the marching orders of the local church that the King of Kings has given us. Jesus Christ is Messiah, the Son of of the living God. May God give us the grace to live like that's the case. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful for your word and its clarity, even though matters can be debated and controversial at the end of the day, they're quite clear. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for Peter and how you used him as a fallible man that he was, but he was a great leader and he charged the gates of hell with boldness and self-abandon, ultimately costing him his life. We're thankful that you chose not just truths and not just people, but the right people who speak the right truths to build your church and that you promise that you're gonna continue to do that forever and ever. Amen. God, we're thankful. Thankful that we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of building your church. I pray that we would recalibrate and prioritize the body of Christ, if we haven't done so, and it would be central because, Lord, you're central. And I pray if there's people here who don't know you that they would see that Jesus Christ is in fact who he said he is. He is not crazy and he is not a deceiver. He is in fact the Christ, the son of you. We're thankful for sending him and revealing that truth to us that we might sing his praise. Help us to do that as we close this morning, but also every day this week. In Christ's name, amen.